I would like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Valerie. Hi, I'm Valerie. I'm a compulsive over and under eater. Hi, Hi you guys. Oh, congratulations. Six months is a big deal. Feelings. Feelings. Um, I'm feeling right now that I'm nervous. My heart is pounding. What what it was like, I'll just spend a minute on first. Um, I just read an article in the New York Sunday Times a few weeks ago on obesity. And they were talking about how by the time we are adults, what we are made up of is about 90% bacteria and other junk and only 10% of what we started out as in the womb. And my mind was blown. You know how it says in Chapter 3 of the Big Book of AA, science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet in terms of coming to terms and understanding exactly what's happening to us. I've known for a really long time that this was not just that I, I was a little kid who ate like a pig. You know, uh, I knew there was something psychologically wrong with me from when I was very young, but I've known also since I got abstinent in 1987 that there was something else very physiological going on with me, and when certain foods hit my system, it was like a freight train took off and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop. So it was really wonderful to see that there's, there's actually this whole field called bariatrics, you know, and they study what happens to us, you know. I, I don't think they get it that thin people can have it too, but someday they will, you know. Um, it, it's, it's between the ears. Um, when I was six weeks old, my mother got a breast infection, and my father, who was a very, very angry man, and I was his first child, he had to take care of me. And um, so he tried to boil the milk or heat it up, whatever it is that they do, did for babies back then, and uh, he spilled cigarette ashes in the only milk in the house. And we lived down a country road, and he, while I'm screaming for milk, and my mother has 105 fever, um, my dad had to drive all the way into town to buy more milk. And if you've ever seen a hungry baby, I, I was in a hunger storm that lasted probably about an hour, maybe two hours. And, um, and he kept yelling at me to shut up because he didn't know what to do. And I didn't know this when I came into the program, but I learned it by peeling away the layers and talking with my family by the time I was six or seven, I had an incredible sense that there was something awfully wrong with me. And there didn't appear to be anything wrong with me at all to anyone else. Doctors, parents, friends, teachers, I tested as a genius. I got straight, I got 28 A's in second grade. No B's. I was the perfect child and happy to be so. And when I was eight years old, a neighborhood teenager took a baseball swing with a croquet mallet into my face and tore my left eyelid down onto my eye. They saved my eye. They saved my eyelid. 
But when we got home that night, I remember sitting at the kitchen table. My mom was eight and a half months pregnant with my third sister. And I got to eat fried apples for dinner. You know, because as a reward for making it through that day, I got to have dessert for dinner. And I think that that was the day I crossed the invisible line. We moved shortly after that. The Cubans pointed missiles at Washington, D.C. Now you know how old I am. And new math was invented that year, so my father couldn't help me with my math homework. So now there was really something wrong with me, and nobody could acknowledge it. And I would come home from school every day, and I would make two pieces of toast while I ate two pieces of toast, while I made two more pieces of toast, while I ate the next two pieces of toast. Whether they had cinnamon and sugar on them with butter, it didn't matter. It was toast, toast. And today we know that that enhances serotonin, which was keeping me from being depressed and anxious. I ate like that until I was 16 years old and somebody gave me my first black beauty, which was um, a diet <laughs> that taught me how not to eat. And I was so relieved of the obsession to eat. I, I thought I had found the answer. I felt free for the first time ever, and I dove head first into diet pills. Became like Miss Normal, uh, only it was hard to fall asleep on them. <laughs> so somewhere in college I learned to drink myself to sleep. And alcohol is sugar. So it would hit my poor adult brain and it would crave more. Fast forward to 1985, it all quit working. And um, I found myself in Alcoholics Anonymous. Actually, in Cocaine Anonymous the first night, because I could only identify as a speed freak. I didn't get anything, but I knew I did speed. And I know I'd done it to the point where I almost died when I was 20 and I was hospitalized. It ate a hole through my gut and nearly killed me uh, because I lived on chocolate milk and crystal methamphetamine for about four months. It felt great. I loved those four months. They were really, really well for me. I played guitar. I sang in bars. I was cool. I had my picture in the paper with the name Valerie under it. You know, I was, I was, I was it. I felt great, and then I nearly died. So, so much for how my thinking on the road to happiness. <laughs> you know, like, this is my life, this is how it's going to look, and it, I almost died from it. And I swore when I got out of the hospital I would never do speed again, and I got out of the hospital, and I started drinking. And I moved to Los Angeles to work in the music business, and I um, was turned on to cocaine the first week of, of work. I was in the rock and roll business, and... Guess what it did? It killed my appetite. Did I want to admit that that's why I liked it? No. I didn't want to admit that's why I liked it. It was cool to do it. It, was, it, it made you feel kind of anesthetized. But the truth was it killed my appetite. 
And I was again relieved. I found something else which I didn't equate with speed or diet pills that I could do that would keep this monster at bay. So I, I got sober. I quit smoking because you could hear my breath like Darth Vader from smoking since I was 13 years old. I was heading into emphysema at 31 years of age. My uh, doctor said when I had a year of sobriety I could quit smoking, and when I quit smoking, I started eating again. And I gained, I think, about 20 pounds in three weeks. And for some reason, in my inventory writing at that point, was coming up how much I hated my mother. And my, my dear AA sponsor said, this isn't about your mother, this is about food. I had no idea what she was talking about, but she took me to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, and, uh, and I got it. I got it. I was struck abstinent, and, uh, and I worked the steps, and that, that's really what I want to talk about today because I, be, I became a psychotherapist. Uh, I went back to school in 85 and, um, because I wanted to understand the ego because I understood that the phenomenon of denial was now life-threatening for me, not just um, annoying. I'd been in therapy for five years and nothing had helped until I hit bottom and got well. And so I wanted to understand how denial worked. And so it took studying the ego and understanding that denial is an ego defense. The ego says, I don't want you to feel those feelings that Sarah was talking about feeling at six months of abstinence. I don't want to feel these, so I'm going to do this, and then I won't feel them anymore. And my ego is on a mission to avoid experiencing life as it is. I didn't realize I was a perfectionist, that I was frightened all the time, that I was anxious all the time, that I was a control freak as a result of being anxious. I didn't understand fear, but I finally understood that I had an ego that didn't want me to feel any of that and that it would go to any length doing anything to keep me at a level of unconsciousness so that I could breathe. And when we say the first step, we admitted that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable we are stepping, it's like stepping from the black and white of the Wizard of Oz into Technicolor. We are stepping out of denial and into the admission that we have a problem. I have family members who uh, know it's a problem. I know many people who know it's a problem. But admitting it and then seeking help for it is when we begin to level the ego just for the day. And once... We have leveled the ego with the admission that we're powerless. That we come here, we raise our hands, and we say, I can't do this by myself. The ego is no longer driving the car. It's in the shotgun seat. And it may be screaming, let's go shopping, let's have a drink, let's have sex with someone we don't know, let's let's drive fast, let's tell a lie about something funny that never happened, let's let's pretend we've read books we never read, let's let's cheat on our husbands and wives, let's yell at our kids, let's kick the dog, you know, let's do anything other than be here present in the moment in 
the fear, anxiety, what the existentialists call the groundlessness of being. That feeling that there's no ground under our feet and that we have to grab onto something. And the good news is after we admit that we're powerless, there's a second step. Sheer genius. That there's a power greater than ourselves. And throughout the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, they call it God. I prefer higher power. In the back of the big book is a one-page appendix called The Spiritual Experience. I used to hear it read from the podium every Friday night in this room. And it says that we come to believe in an unsuspected inner resource. Inner resource. Which we presently identify with a power greater than ourselves. So now that we've said to this ego, or this ego has said, I am powerless, we place it in the care of this other thing which we do not understand. And which for me I had a lot of contempt about. The wisdom is also on that same spiritual experience page. It says the only bar against knowledge is contempt prior to investigation. They had me nailed. Mm -hmm. I had to investigate this this higher power thing, which I I didn't believe in. I had no interest in. I, I stopped believing in God in third grade when I heard about the Holocaust. It was like, no, there cannot be a God when children suffer. I was Ivan Karamazov from Russian literature, and if children can die and suffer, then I do not believe in God. You know, and when I, I was an eight-year-old existentialist. I was 25. <laughs> I was 25 before I understood what existentialism was. I pretended between 18 and 25 to know what it meant. <laughs> and for those who are nodding and pretending to know, it merely means that you are someone who is curious about your existence. That's all it means. It's nothing fancy, but we don't get our existence. And at the core of our existence, we are anxious because we are mortal. And those of us in this room take that anxiety and we eat over it or we think about eating or we think about what we didn't eat or we, we do anything we can other than be in that existential awareness. Now, how was I going to find a higher power that I could do business with? Because the third step basically says, I have to make a business deal with this guy. That I'm going to turn my life and my will, my food, my relationships, whatever it is that's driving me crazy, I'm going to turn it over to the care of this unsuspected inner resource so that I may then help others. So I came up with a higher power named Clarence because Clarence was the angel in It's a Wonderful Life. And if Clarence could give Jimmy Stewart an inkling that his life had enough value that he should live, then I figured Clarence was good enough of a starter higher power for me. And I used Clarence for many, many years. I now have an internalized Clarence who's not overweight. (laughs) The angel was quite chubby in (laughs) The Wonderful Life. And I couldn't have a higher power that wasn't a goal But on the third step, I took my ego consciously and I put it into the care, kicking and screaming, I might add, into the care of a power greater than myself. Under the condition that then when I received help, I would then help others. That's my contract. 
You help me, I'll help the next guy is my shorthand version of it. You work through me, I'll help others. Whatever the problem is, if I put it into the context of the third step, so that when I get through it, I have a story to tell. That I'm also a writer, so it serves me very well to just think of this all as material. You know, everything I go through, I'm going to write about somebody else having gone through it as if it weren't me. <laughs> and it's going to serve me, and it's going to then help others. The most helpful thing any of my patients tell me is that is when I give those little tiny bits of self-disclosure that say, I understand because I've felt these things too. And they go, really? Because most of us live in such dire isolation that we don't know that anybody else feels the way that we feel. And so... I took the third step. I took it on my knees, holding hands with my sponsor. I thought it was the most stupid thing. But I did it. I did it. And the funny thing is, five years later, I was a counselor in an alcohol and drug unit. And um, I had the pleasure of being the counselor to a priest who believed that everybody was loved by God except him. And uh, he used to joke that this agnostic taught him how to pray because I took the third step on my knees with him when I was five years into this. And he kept saying, I can't believe somebody who believes like you could help a man like me. And that's how this works, this we thing, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what gender we are. It doesn't matter what color or age. If we have this beast that lives in our head, this damaged part of the ego that says, I don't want to feel this, I want a cookie. Hmm. I sponsored a woman on the internet once whose motto became Kleenex, not cookies. <laughs> Isn't that a great motto? She just said, whenever I want a cookie, I just let myself cry now. And I was like, oh, yeah, Kleenex, not cookies. So out of denial and into the beginnings of a spiritual experience, which I still cringe sometimes when I say spiritual experience because I don't think of myself as... I just picture people coming to the door with the Jehovah Witness thing going, Hello, I'm here to talk to you about this thing that's going to save your soul. And that's what I thought you, that you guys wanted me to do. you know. And um, I found out very different. And I was very, very lucky to be surrounded down in Venice, Santa Monica area by a lot of agnostics and atheists who had done business with a higher power. Once we've put ourselves safely into the care of this inner resource for enough days in a row, along with calling food in, by the way, I find that that is a magical thing to do. When I asked my sponsor why she wanted me to do it, she said because after three days of calling it in, the obsession was removed. I was willing to do anything. The first three days off of sugar, I ate eight apples. I called them all in. You know, I was sick for days. But it worked. It got me off of the sugar. And I would call my food in. And I knew that I truly surrendered when I was in a restaurant back before cell phones. And I took a dime or a quarter or whatever a phone call cost then. And I went and I called my sponsor because I was making a change at the restaurant. And it was no longer about me having a dirty little secret about how I ate. It was an honesty thing. And there was freedom in that honesty. No shame. Because shame makes me eat. I feel bad, 
I eat. I'm ashamed. I want to hide. If you've eaten something, then you want something more, and you eat something more, and you want something more, and you get something more, and then you feel bad that you ate it. And it's a vicious, vicious, vicious cycle that I have lived in for way too many years. So I took an inventory. I didn't know at the time about the breast infection and the ashes in the milk and the getting yelled at. But I did know about things that went deeper and deeper and deeper inside me than my first two 12-step programs had brought me to. Because the food, mother is food. You know, whether she's breastfeeding us or hand-feeding us, whoever that primary caregiver is, is is food to us because we can't differentiate them from food. They are food. And my relationship with my mom stayed complicated for seven years. I kept trying to find out, why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you understand me? And seven years into it, we're at 3 o'clock in the morning because the Wilkerson side of my family stays up all night long talking. And I said, why? Why can't you understand me? And she started to cry. And she said, I don't think I'll ever understand you. And in that moment, I accepted her just as she was. And our relationship got better from there. It was in the acceptance of her. But I had to write the inventory. I wrote her letter after letter, angry, angry letters. Why didn't you this? Why couldn't you that? Why didn't you see I had a problem? The denial in my family was incredible. And after she died just two years ago of cancer, and she always denied that she had a sugar problem. But she told one of her sisters, one of my aunts, who had asked her about craving, because the whole family has got this thing. She said to my, to my mom, she said, Joy, do you, do you, she had a southern accent. But, do, you, do you crave sugar? And my mom said, Darling, I don't just crave it. My physiology demands it. And she could never admit that to me. I don't know why. But I wanted to wrestle her to the ground and make her admit it. Mm. And she couldn't. I wanted. I don't know if I wanted to be saved by her or for her to save me, but the, the continuing inventory of that relationship continues to help me understand and love love that part of me that is afraid that I'm going to die of starvation, is afraid that I'm going to uh, be overwhelmed by feelings and go completely insane, that is afraid that I won't be loved, that is afraid that I will fail horribly and be humiliated. Out of my fifth step came my sixth and seventh steps. The sixth and seventh steps. Are there shades to pull down there? I'm feeling like there's this spiritual thing happening where I have this halo of light behind me now and it's making people like flee. So it's unnerving. I haven't cussed once yet, have I? Okay, good. I I promised myself I wouldn't swear tonight. Anyway, um, it's about time. It's about time I gave up the cussing. But anyway, so out of my fifth step came a sixth and seventh steps, which I understand today as the patterns. Carl Jung, who was the great, great, great grandfather of spiritual psychology and a correspondent with Bill Wilson from AA, said that um, 
complexes or patterns of pain that start in early life, often pre-verbally, but we reenact and repeat and reenact and repeat. And for me, the repetition in the six and seven steps comes up as perfectionism. If I get this right, then I'll be okay. If I get an A, then I'll be all right. If I'm hugely successful, then I'll be all right. Then if I'm thin, I will be all right. I heard somebody take a, take a candle, excuse me, for uh, an A slip. Um, take a candle for two years of abstinence on Sunday. And he said, and I feel great. And then there was this dead silence. And he goes, no, but seriously, folks. <laughs> And then he talked about the pain he was in. And it's like, we get to be happy, joyous, and free, but when they wrote that in the big book, they only had four years of sobriety. <laughs> I, I have 20 plus and 19 years of abstinence, and uh, it, wasn't al- it hasn't always been happy, joyous, and free. Has it been better than it was when I was out there? Yes. But it has not been happy, joyous, and free. We say in OA that uh, there's a tiger and we have to take him out of a cage and walk him three times a day. Whereas in AA, we get to put the tiger in the cage, lock the cage, and walk away. And walking that tiger is where I get close to my six and seven steps. What is going on with me that would drive me into eating? I don't like the phrase, but of course it's a phrase from 1939 or whatever, defects of character. Back then, a personality disorder was called a character disorder because it was a moral thing when you were nuts, you know? It was, the, the inventory is called a searching and moral inventory. Today, if it were written, it would be called a searching and psychological inventory of our grief and our loss and our shame and our anger and resentments. But they had four years of sobriety, and it was amazing what they figured out for four years, you know? Absolutely amazing. But they also said, we know only a little. And that's my favorite line, because there's always room to learn more. I've never done learning. On my six and seven steps, I paused on them about five years ago, and I worked them every day for a year. And my sponsor said, it's time to get on to steps eight and nine. And I kept saying, I've always jumped over these. And I really, really want to work them this time. The primary defect that had come up, the primary unskilled behavior that had come up at that stage in my life was this deep sense that I would not be loved, that I could not truly be loved for who I am. And it wasn't just a rejection by others. It was a rejection by myself. I had completely rejected the very core of who I am, and I was tired of hiding it. I was tired of hating myself. I was tired of succeeding in everyone else's eyes and then throwing my successes aside, looking for the next one that was going to give me that click. You know the click? The click that Paul Newman talked about in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, actually Tennessee Williams, I should say, talked about the click when he drank, the click. I can't get the click, he would say. When I get the click, then I'm okay. My six and seven steps said, you're on the hook to make me feel good. And when that failed, my six and seven steps said, I hate myself. And what are you going to do about it? Is take acts of love toward myself. My newest 
my newest way to deal with my six and seven steps is because I have this, this belly hatred. I have this imaginary belly. It's a ghost belly left over from when I was 18 years old and, and peaked out at 158 pounds for 10 minutes before the black beauties, 18, 16, 17. Um, I have this ghost belly, and I hate it whenever it shows up, and it shows up after I've eaten. And I have to say now, my higher power is my center. It lives in the center of me. And I'm going to bless that center just for this moment. And it's especially hard in yoga when there's a mirror. And I'm looking at it. And part of me is going, I hate you. I hate you. How can you be so flawed? And another part is going, I love you. You're my higher self. You're my unsuspected inner resource. It's okay. I hold you safely. I put my ego into the care of my higher power who currently resides in my belly. That was a tough one. It's still a tough one. But when I'm in that place and I'm willing to be there, something is happening. Something healing is happening. Out of the six and seven steps grow these lists. If you have a really savvy sponsor, she'll be taking notes while you read your inventory. And she'll be saying, oh, here's a character defect. Oh, here's somebody you need to make amends to and how. The only amends I haven't made in my Overeaters Anonymous program is I did not go, I did not go to the PX in Tokyo, Japan and pay them back for all the Twinkies and snowballs that I stole from the Embassy PX. <laughs> because my father was at the U.S. Embassy, and I just thought that was a little bit over the top to go to the U.S. Embassy. I was just afraid. Of, I was just afraid. So I'll put like 20 bucks in the basket when it goes by and say, this is for those Twinkies. This is for those snowballs. But I just realized I'm going to Japan in two weeks. I was there last year, and this thought never crossed my mind. But I, I may, I may, if I have time, <laughs> you hear that? If I have time, I may stop by, if the building is still standing. This is from 1967. And give them a couple hundred bucks for the, the Twinkies and snowballs that I stole from the commissary. That's how we make amends. But what really happens when we make amends is we change. If you look up amends in the dictionary, it says to change. If you send me a contract and you ask me to look at it, I will amend it. That means I change it. And in Overeaters Anonymous, compared to AA and other programs where we tend to hurt others, overeaters tend to hurt themselves. We may hurt other people by hurting ourselves, but we are the kind of people who, when we're hurt, we take poison and hope somebody else will die from it. But we are the ones taking the poison. And it's about not taking the poison. And I give myself that kind of a care and amend-making at every meal. I try to chew my food. I try to eat mindfully. I try to put things into my body that will not make me feel sick or pregnant. <laughs> um, no offense to anyone who's pregnant, but when you're not pregnant, that's not a good way to feel. <laughs> um, and, it, and once you get about halfway through the ninth step, you read the promises in the big book that say we are amazed before, we're going to be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness.
And then that takes us into step 10, which says we continue to take personal inventory. And when we're wrong, promptly admit it. And this program gives me more opportunities to admit I'm wrong than any other program I've ever seen or heard of because I can't do the food perfectly. I cannot do it perfectly. And in the last three years, I have experimented with dessert with a sponsor who has eight years longer in this program than I do, I have experimented with eating high-protein meal and sharing a dessert after dinner. I don't advise this kind of experimentation with anything less than 15 or 20 years. I don't even know if it's really that good an idea now, but it beats drinking. And I needed an experiment. I wanted to see if I'm still bodily and mentally different than my fellows, and, and the truth is I am. When I taste that crap, even though it tastes sort of like uh, a cheesecake version of LSD, it's kind of acidic and it burns your mouth and feels like some kind of, like it's been cut with baby uh, laxatives and poisonous things like cocaine. It doesn't taste good, but what it does for a minute is there's this little thing in my head that goes, woo! And I, I live for the woo. You know, I've, I've lived for the woo since I was little, you know, and so um, I consider me a scout in this regard. I've gone out there a few times. I've experimented with it. It, it really doesn't taste very good. It's more of a social thing, and it's really, it's not worth the price that I pay for the rat's nest in my head. But it may have taken me closer to the self-hatred, in which case this is a good thing. Once we've worked the 10th step for long enough to clear the rubbish off of the landing strip, my sponsor used to use the image of a football field covered in cow crap. Mm -hmm. Once you've cleared the field enough so that you're not constantly stepping in something from the past, then you begin to see prayer and meditation, really deep meditation knowledge of a higher power's will and the power to carry that out. And for me, all a higher power's will means is an untampered with process with me not driving the car. That's all it means. I don't, I don't get that. The minute I hear a southern accent, it's God's will. I go, oh dear, it's back to Sunday school all over again. And that happened and the Holocaust happened. And there's no higher power, so I might as well leave. So I just go very gently back to it's a higher power. I can listen to it. It only says loving things to me. It doesn't tell me about heaven and hell. It tells me that one day at a time I can live a full and abundant life doing no harm to myself and no harm to others. And if I've done that for a little while, then I can then go to step 12, which says that I carry the message to others, which is what brings me to a podium like this to tell you the story, to see if there's anything that you identify with, there's any shred of which you can take away with you. I always can take one thing away from a meeting. My first OA meeting, all I heard was, if you want to stay in the now, stop talking to people who aren't in the room with you. And I, got, I knew exactly what she meant. Because I always am talking to people who aren't in the room. I'm arguing with them. I'm fussing with them and fighting with them and telling them, if only I'd said it this way, I said it that way, then they wouldn't have gotten addicted to Vicodin. I could have saved that one. And that one would, that wouldn't have happened if I had only been able to. And I am not in charge of the universe. And you guys are really lucky that I'm not in charge of the universe. <laughs> 
and very lucky that this is a we thing because we don't have to do it alone. Thanks for listening. <laughs>